0: It's time that we get into a devo. Um, we have a devo tonight from a really good friend of mine. Uh, his name's Cody Swanton, and uh, Cody has been one of my best friends for years and years and years. Uh, he's a real sweet brother, uh, probably one of the the kindest guys that I know. And uh, so, I just pray that you uh, open up your ears as Cody comes up to share what the Lord uh, has shared with him. So join me in welcoming Cody.
1: Hello everybody. My name is Cody, as Tyler just said. Um, tonight I'm going to just be talking about being spiritually grounded. Uh, the text is going to be out of Haggai chapter one. Uh, we're just going to cover a couple of verses there. Um, while you guys are turning there, I will, uh, go ahead and say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, God, and I just uh, thank you so much for, um, first of all, Sips Coffee Shop, God, that we get to come here and meet up every single week, Father, and just um, praise you and, and learn about you and have fellowship with one another, Father. It's just such a great thing that we get to have here, Father, and we, we do not take it for granted. Um, I just pray, Lord, just that as I uh, give the o Father, that it would not be me giving the o but you 100%, God, God. Um, and just to help us all to take something out of it, God, to become more spiritually grounded in you. We love you so much, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, the, the text that I'm going to be uh, coming out of. So starting in verse 4, it says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now that it's drink, little but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but, uh, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in bags with holes. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So what God is saying here through Haggai the prophet, um, just bringing attention to the people of Israel at that time. See, what what had happened, this is... uh, this is after a decree had gone out for the people of Israel to go out and rebuild the temple. They were they, their job was to go back to the Promised Land, to the home, to the place that they had been living for so many years, and to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And what was going on here, in uh, as it says in verse four, it says, "Is it time for yourselves to dwell in, this pa- in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin?" What had been happening is that the people. The people were not building the temple they weren't they weren 't doing what God had told them to do they weren 't doing what God had commanded them to do. What they were doing was just working on their own their their own lives going on their own business they were constructing their own houses they weren 't putting god 's priorities first they weren 't being spiritually grounded in God and uh, this is just something that's really uh the lord's really been speaking to me about this the past few weeks or so um just because of some, some stuff that has gone in, on in my life, personally. Um, I mean, I can tell you guys right now that up until about four months ago, I was not spiritually grounded. I had gone away from, I had let this foundation of God get cracked and stumble away, and I wasn't maintaining it the way that I should have been. And it's something that really came back to bite me. Things started going wrong. Stuff started to happen in my life that I didn't want to happen. And that's because I wasn't maintaining my relationship with God the way that I should have been. And that's what was happening here with the people of Israel. They weren't maintaining their relationship with God. They weren't focused on the things that God wanted them to be focused on. They were wavering off on their own paths. They were building their own houses while God's house, the temple, was lying in ruins. It was just sitting there destroyed while they were trying to fix up their own lives and fix up their own houses. This is something that's so important for us that we need to be spiritually grounded. We see here... In the text, that because of this, God had caused a drought. There wasn't enough food in the land. There wasn't enough water in the land. It says that they were they were they were earning wages only to put them in empty or in uh, pockets with holes. They were just throwing things away because they had no other choice. Everything was going wrong. This was God trying to give them a wake up call. Just like God had given me a wake up call, we need to be spiritually grounded. We need to be focused on the things of the Lord. Um, I like what it says in verse, down in verse 8 at the very end. It says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The Lord wants to take pleasure in our lives. He wants to be glorified in our lives. And if we, if we spiritually ground ourselves, if we work on the foundation that God has laid for us, if we maintain that foundation that he has laid for us, then he is going to be glorified in our lives, and he's going to take much pleasure in our lives. That has really been my biggest prayer the past, the past few months or so, just that I would not waver away from the path that God has laid for me. And I think that should be each and every one of our prayers in here, that we would not stray away from, from God's promise, that we would not stray away from what God has for us in the future. We need to maintain this foundation that God has given us. We need to maintain our spiritual walk. We need to sp- maintain our spiritual life in God. We need to be in our devotions every single day. We need to, I mean, that's something that I, I, I had gotten away from was my devotion life. I was straying away from that. I was putting it off till later on in the day, like, oh, I'll, I'll get to that. I, I woke up too late. I need to go to work right now, blah, blah, blah. That can't happen. If you wake up too late, oh, well, read your devotion anyway. Get into it. I guarantee you that God is going to bless you so much for it. He's going to glorify himself through your life if you do that. If you just set aside the time for him. We need to be in our devotions. We need to be praying nonstop, praying about everything that comes up in our lives. That's something that I have been focusing on in my own life over the past few months. Just as I was saying, I'm focusing on bringing up the tiniest little insignificant things. I'm bringing up to God because I want him to be involved in every aspect of my life. Our God is so great and so powerful, and it just, it blesses me just to know that he wants to be a part of our life, that he wants to be glorified in our life, and that he wants to take pleasure in it. But before that happens, we need to take pleasure in him. We need to find our only true satisfaction in him, not in our hobbies, not in our jobs or school. I don't know who would take satisfaction in school, but whatever. But we need to take satisfaction in Him and no one and nothing else in this life, because if we if we search for satisfaction among the things of this world, then it's going to lead to nothing. We're going to be disappointed. We're going to be disappointed every single time. That is something that I have realized. Live your life to bless the Lord, and and be spiritually grounded. I mean the whole the whole thing spiritually grounded. Love God because he first loved us, and, and I guarantee you that he will do so much for your life. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you again, and um, Father, I just pray that, that we would not stray away from, from you, Father, that we would not stray away from the path that you have laid out for us, God. I pray that we wouldn't uh, let our foundation in you break away, that we would always maintain it and, and keep it looking nice, Father. I pray that our spiritual life would be the number one priority because that's what it needs to be, God. And I pray that, that in the end of it all, that you would, you would take much satisfaction, much pleasure in the things that we do with our lives and in the way that we glorify you with our lives, Father. We love you so much again and, and thank you, Father, for everything that you've done for us and continue to do and things that you will do in the future, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.
0: Amen. Well, we're going to be jumping into Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44. We're continuing on in our narrative of the life of Joseph. And before I get into my standard recap of what happened last week, and over the last week, rather, I wanted to do a quick recap again of Genesis. Uh, Not just going through everything that we've studied, but specifically the theme of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. Great job, family. And we're looking at two themes, really one theme, but a two-part theme of Genesis. And that's God revealing his character. God revealing his character. First of all, we saw it in God revealing his character through creation, Right. And now we're seeing God revealing his character through his chosen people, through his chosen people. When we first started taking a look at at, uh, the life of Joseph last week, uh, I made it a point to uh, point out that Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph Joseph is a type of Christ. And what that means is he is a early foreshadowing of Jesus, and of all that he would do on the cross. And last Tuesday, in our study, we took a look at Joseph. And uh, you remember he had a couple of dreams that caused his brothers to dislike him quite a bit. And to compound that, uh, you know, Joseph had, had been a little bit of a tattletale on his brothers, and so they didn't really like him for that either, and to compound that... Jacob, Joseph's dad, favored him above all the other kids. And so we have Jacob's sin and Joseph's sin coming together to cause his brothers uh, to really have a huge dislike for Joseph. And where was God in the whole thing? Well, we learned he was dumping fuel on the fire, right? He was making it worse. He gave Joseph a couple of dreams that would seal the deal, ensuring that Joseph's brothers would completely hate him. Would completely hate him. Why would God do something like that? Well, we're going to see why in our chapter today. But, uh, and in our little recap still of of what happened over the last week. But what ended up happening is, as you remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. He was coming back over. His dad sent him, go check on uh, your brother's. Uh, up at Shechem. And so Joseph went to Shechem and didn't find him there and uh, had to go a little further north and found his brothers. And as he was coming over the hill, his brothers came together and devised a scheme to kill him. Well, Reuben, the oldest, didn't really want this to happen uh, because it would fall on his head. And so he said, let's not kill him because then his blood will cry out to God from the ground. So instead, let's just throw him in a pit and forget about him. The brothers liked this plan, uh, but Reuben, all along, he was planning on going out, getting Joseph out of the pit, and bringing him back to dad unharmed. But when Joseph came up, the brothers attacked him, stripped him naked, and threw him into this empty well. And uh, there he lied on the ground bruised, bloodied, and beaten uh, as his brothers had lunch. These are some sick puppies, and they really had no care or concern for either Joseph or their father. We know that because what they did is they took Joseph out of the pit from, by Judah's idea, and they sold him into slavery. They sold him into slavery. Then they took his coat and killed a goat and put the goat's blood on the coat and brought it back to dad, brought it back to Jacob. And Jacob took the coat and they said, hey, identify your son's coat, basically. And he said, "This this is Joseph's coat that I gave him. My favorite son. He must have been torn to pieces by some wild animal. He's dead. And Jacob mourned and mourned and mourned. He mourned so deeply that it says that he could not be comforted. He couldn't be comforted, but he told his kids, I'm going to die mourning for my son. He loved Joseph dearly. But we take a look back at Joseph. The lens, in a sense, zooms off of, J- off of uh, Jacob and the brothers and back on Joseph. And we see over the last week of reading through Scripture, a chapter a day, We see the rest of the narrative of Joseph's life. What happens? Well, he gets sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, who was one of the chief of Pharaoh's guard. This was a very rich, very powerful man, and Joseph is sold into his service. Joseph is such a godly man, though, and such a hard worker that he ends up being elevated by Potiphar to be more than just a mere slave. In fact, Joseph says... uh, that even Potiphar is not greater in his own house than Joseph. Potiphar made Joseph and and cared about him so much and was so blessed and pleased by him that he raised him up to be equal to himself in his own house. So Joseph, in a sense, was over everything in the house. Over all the other slaves, he he took care of it all. He was Potiphar's go-to guy, his right-hand man, probably a close confidant. But Potiphar had a wife, And this wife liked to sleep around, apparently, and found Joseph extremely attractive. And so Joseph, a probably 18 or 19-year-old, red-blooded young man, as he's constantly cleaning and taking care of Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife would constantly call out to him to come and to lie on the bed with her. We obviously all know what that means. Um, But he refused to do it. He refused to do it time and time and time again. Finally, when no one else was in the house, nobody was around, Potiphar's wife said to Joseph, come lie with me. And, uh, and here was the opportunity. There was no one around. No one would ever know. She certainly wasn't going to tell. He definitely wasn't going to tell. And there's nobody else in the house. All the other servants were gone. Joseph and Potiphar were al- and Potiphar's wife pardon me, were alone. But what did Joseph do? He said, no, how, how could I do this great evil and sin against my God? And uh, she, she calls out to him, this time sort of angrily, again, to lie with him, and grabs him by the, by the tunic, by the cloak, pulls him into bed with her, and he wrestles out of his shirt and books it out of the house naked. He, just, he wasn't even going to go there. Didn't even want to go there. A godly, godly young man. But Potiphar's wife, feeling very dejected and scorned, we all know that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, she goes to Potiphar and claims that Joseph tried to rape her. Goes to Potiphar and lies. And so Potiphar, bummed out, uh, probably not really believing his wife, but having to do what he had to do, takes Joseph and throws him into prison. Well in prison once again he's such a godly young man that he ends up having this this status even in prison. And while he's there, he interprets the dream of two of Pharaoh's servants. Two of Pharaoh's servants, his baker and his cupbearer. He interprets their dreams, and uh, he the dreams were that uh the, the, the baker was going to die, the cupbearer was going to be restored. And so Joseph says to the cupbearer, remember me when you get restored. Get me out of prison, okay? When you are back at Pharaoh's right hand, let him know about me. So just as Joseph prophesied, the baker was put to death, the cupbearer was restored, and the cupbearer forgot. (laughs) He completely forgot about Joseph until Pharaoh had a couple of very strange dreams, very strange dreams, and he brings everybody to interpret the dream. No one can interpret it. Finally, the cupbearer remembers oh, Pharaoh, I met this amazing guy in prison. He totally interpreted my dream. So Pharaoh calls Joseph out. Joseph interprets the dreams and tells Pharaoh, There are going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt and seven years of famine. So you need to prepare now because there's going to be a great famine in the land for seven years. Well, Potiphar is so impressed by Joseph that not only does he say, go, you go, get out of prison, go make preparations, go take care of it. But he makes him regent over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. This is like the ultimate rags to riches story in the entire Bible. He goes from being in prison to being second in command only to Pharaoh in Egypt, probably the largest kingdom of its day. And quite a decadent kingdom, to be honest. And so Joseph makes the preparations necessary and uh, silos a bunch of grain during the seven years of plenty for the seven, seven years of famine. Well, not only did this famine hit Egypt, but it hit the land of Canaan as well. And so the lens zooms back out off of Joseph and back to Jacob and the rest of Joseph's brothers. They're starving. They're starving in the land of Canaan. They're not going to make it through this famine. And so Jacob tells his sons, go to Egypt and buy food. And so Jacob gives his sons a bunch of money. They go into Egypt And Joseph finds out about it. They they appear before him. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he contains himself, though, and he, he wants to, in a sense, test his brothers. So he calls them spies. He's like, you're spies. You're here to spy out the land to see the barrenness, the nakedness of the land. No, we're not. We swear. We're honest men. We've never been spies before. We we promise. We're just trying to buy grain. And so Joseph starts asking about their father and if they have another brother. And they're like, yeah, uh, our dad Jacob, he has another son, Benjamin. You know? What? And so what Joseph does is he schemes in his mind. He wants them He wants to see whether his brothers have changed or not. Whether they're any different than they are. And so he tells them, I don't believe you. I think you're all spies. So this is what I want you to do. He says, I fear God. And since I fear God, I'm going to test you on this to see if you're telling the truth or a lie. I should kill you all right now because you're spies. But I'll hold one of you here in prison And the rest of you go and get your brother and bring him back to me to prove that you're not spies. And then I'll give you all the grain you want. So they say, we don't really think that's going to happen. I I mean, this is dad's, I don't think he's going to let, go. If you don't get him, Simeon's dead. Keep Simeon. And the rest of them pack up and head out to, uh, down to, Canaan to get Benjamin now Benjamin was Joseph's only real full brother understand Reuben and Judah and uh, Simeon Levi Gad all all the other brothers they're only his half-brothers okay Benjamin is his only full brother the the last remaining son of Rachel Jacob's favorite wife he loved her deeply, and, uh, and he loved her sons deeply, and so they come to dad. They find out along the way that, that not only has Joseph given them grain, although they don't know it's Joseph, but he put their money back in the sacks, and so they're freaking out because they think he's going to think we stole the money, and so Jacob reluctantly – I'm trying to summarize this summary – Jacob reluctantly lets Benjamin go And uh, and he says, take the money back, show it to him, tell him, hey, the money was still in our sacks. Here it is. So they go down, fully expecting that something bad is going to happen. Because Simeon's in prison. They're taking Benjamin. If something happens to him, dad's going to die. Like, literally, he is going to die if anything happens to Benjamin. And so they go down. And they're, they've already realized, you know, and they've, they've said amongst themselves that this is all happening to us because of what happened, what we did with Joseph. And God has brought this as a reckoning for his blood. And, oh, man, something bad's going to happen to Benjamin. Something bad's going to happen to Simeon. We have all this. And so they're, they're freaking out all the way down. They get to Egypt, and Joseph invites them all for a feast. And they're thinking, what could this be about? But it ends up being this this really ornate, beautiful feast. And Joseph is talking with, with mostly Benjamin the whole time and asking him questions. And uh, it's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful feast. The next morning, though, Joseph uh, wakes up before everyone else does. They're all drunk, you know, because they had a nice feast. And uh, that's where we pick up in our chapter. So that was... The shortest summary I could possibly do, if you haven't been reading along, you missed a lot over the last week, which is why, be reading along. Chapter eight, it's not that hard, family. But picking up in Genesis chapter 44, read along with me. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Oh, I skipped a line. And put my cup, my silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to the steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not that my... Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Verse 6, so when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. We'll pause there. Okay, so what's happened? Joseph comes up with this scheme. Remember, the whole purpose of Joseph doing this is to see his brother's hearts, is to see see their hearts. You remember what happened last Tuesday? I already went over it a little bit, but Joseph comes over the hill having done them no real wrong and they overtake him and they strip him naked. They throw him in a pit intending to leave him for dead. Their own brother. Then they go and they, they sell him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Such heartlessness and such callous, such hate, But Joseph wants to offer them a chance to to repent, in a sense. Not only is this a test, but at the same time, it's the road to repentance and the path to redemption. The road to repentance and the path to redemption. Joseph comes up with this scheme. He says to his servant, okay, go and fill up their donkeys with grain. Put the money back, uh, just like you did before. And this time, put my silver chalice, my silver cup, in Benjamin's sack of grain, the youngest. Interesting that Joseph was sold for silver, and so he put silver in Benjamin's sack. They take off, and once they had only gone a a short distance, a couple miles, Joseph's like, all right, go. And go tell him exactly this. Go say, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? And so the servant goes and does exactly what Joseph sent him to do. And the brothers are astonished. They're shocked. How could you say something like that? We're not thieves. Okay? You remember we, we brought the money back. What kind of thief brings back something only to steal again? That's not logical. It doesn't make sense. We wouldn't ever do anything like that. All of us here are innocent. What's this guy's problem? This region? He keeps accusing us of all this ridiculous stuff. We're just trying to buy food to keep our family alive. So the servant says, well, fine. Well, I'm going to search all your sacks. And so indignantly, they all get down off their donkeys and put their sack on the ground and open it up. Reuben first. The servant goes through. No, nothing here. Goes through next. Goes next to Simeon. Opens up Simeon's sack, looks through it. Nothing. Then Levi. Nothing. Judah. Dan. Gad. Naphtali, Asher, and so on and so forth, so forth through all the brothers searching their sacks. Each of them, I imagine, with their arms crossed in an annoyed arrogance because they would never do anything like it. We would never steal. How dare you accuse us of this? In fact, they were so certain of their innocence that they made a wild, wild, voluntary consequence and that's if any one of us has stolen this cup let the person who the cup is found in let him be killed and the rest of us will be your servants joseph stewart responds let it be as you say only the rest of you can go free and the one whose hand the cup is found in will remain a slave here in egypt So continuing to read, verse 10, he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Not a word is recorded by any of the brothers, but actions as we know speak louder than words. And we read in verse 13, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Let's pause. There's something so important here. I don't want you to miss it. Remember back with me. Remember back. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They originally wanted to kill him. And so Judah steps up to the plate and says, guys, let's not kill our brother because what profit is it for us to kill him? Instead, let's sell him to those slave traders over there. So they pull him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. You remember it was Reuben's idea to throw him into the pit, fully intending to rescue Joseph. But when Reuben came back, And saw that Joseph was gone, he tore his clothes. The other brothers, completely calloused over by hatred for Joseph, rejoice in their newfound riches. And Reuben tears his clothes. Tearing your clothes in this culture and in this time was a symbol of grief, of mourning. And so here we are, full circle now. Benjamin, dad's favorite son, is now going to be kept a slave in Egypt forever. Every single one of them tears their clothes, they get on their donkeys. And they go back to the city. They go back to Egypt. We're beginning to see a change of heart in the brothers. But let's keep reading. Continuing on in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there they fell before him to the ground. Let's pause right there. I just want to point out a very interesting thing that's happening here. We've seen already before when the brothers appear before Joseph, they all bow their heads before him. Okay? But it it says specifically here in verse uh, 14 that they fell before him to the ground. As Joseph is looking at his brothers, I can't help but imagine him remembering his dream that he had had 20 years ago that he told his brothers, I've had this dream. We were all sheaving wheat and your sheaves bowed down to mine. I had this other dream and the sun and the moon and 12 stars bowed down to me. He had dreamed, God had promised him, had told him that his brothers would bow to him and here they are. A fulfillment of prophecy as Joseph is looking at his brothers, wondering what is going to happen next. No doubt blessed and surprised that they came back at all. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? I want to pause right there just to point out. From the text, it's not clear whether or not Joseph was practicing divination, which was a pagan custom, sort of like reading tea leaves. I don't see Joseph doing something like that, uh, but he had to keep a pagan persona. We know from the accounts before that every time he talked with his brothers, he talked with them through a translator. He spoke Egyptian rather than Hebrew. And so, uh, I imagine, especially since they didn't recognize him, he had to keep this persona of being an Egyptian rather than a Hebrew. So, I don't see scripturally that Joseph was actually practicing witchcraft here. Um, but he had to keep this persona nonetheless. And they definitely didn't doubt that, you know, he had the power of practicing divination. Uh, and so he, so he tells them, <clears throat> pardon me, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, Judah, again remember family, Judah is the one who came up with the idea in the first place to throw Joseph under the bus and on the slave wagon to Egypt. It was Judah's idea. To sell him into slavery. And so here comes Judah stepping up to him. As Joseph looks into his eyes, remembering his brother's words, his cold, calloused heart coming up with such an awful suggestion of selling him into slavery, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also, in whose cup in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah steps up to Joseph. What can I say? There's no defense I can possibly give. We are guilty. God has found out our guiltiness. Judah wasn't here throwing Benjamin under the bus. Hey, he's he's his own man. He did his own thing. I mean, you, you can't expect us to be held accountable for this kid's actions. I mean, yeah, you know, he's not a minor. You know, I mean, just punish him, deal with him. Judah says... God has found out our guiltiness. Judah was taking ownership for what he had suggested and what he and his brothers carried out some 20 years ago, selling Joseph into slavery. A real heart turn here at this point. Judah says, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose, cup, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Joseph is really pushing his brothers on this. He's saying, Look, no, y'all can go free. Okay, you, you don't have any debt to me. You can all go free back home if you throw your brother, Benjamin, under the bus. Dad's favorite son that he dotes on. Joseph is recreating, understand, the exact same scenario in which they sold him into slavery. You remember it was Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph for being the son of Rachel that contributed to their hatred of him. And so Joseph plays on that and holds Benjamin back to test their love, not only for Benjamin, their brother, but also for their father, Jacob. He creates the exact same scenario. Hey, all of you can go free. You Go, get out of here. Go in peace. He's staying with me. He's staying in slavery in Egypt. Sell your brother into slavery, he says. Only this time the price was so much higher than 20 pieces of silver. This wasn't just a payment. This was their very freedom. Their very freedom is being offered to them to sell their brother into slavery. Go in peace to your father. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife has bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and my harm happen harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. We'll pause. Judah was obviously a very elegant public speaker. He must have been a very charismatic, manipulative kind of guy. I mean, we, the first speech we ever read from Judah as he stakes, steps up to take leadership among his brothers... He decides and convinces them to sell Joseph into slavery. And now Judah speaks again. Judah speaks again, and he delivers this eloquent speech to Pharaoh or to Joseph, I'm sorry. Pharaoh's regent. The man who could snap his fingers and, and he'd be dead. He steps up to him and he says, My Lord, please listen to me. And he recounts to them everything that's happened so far you remember sir we came to you and you asked us if we had a father or another brother and and we told you that we did and and you told us that we had to go get him and bring him back but we told you if we do that if our brother benjamin come leaves our father it'd kill him but you made us do it and so we went to To Dad, and we told him that we needed to bring Benjamin with us to get food and to rescue Simeon out of prison. And our dad he looked at he looked at us and he said, You know that my wife has borne me two sons. Family, what Jacob did here is delegitimatized the other ten brothers. Completely delegitimized them and said, in effect, you're not my sons. My wife has only borne me two sons. What a sting. What a knife to their chest that must have, have been Imagine!" And he says, my wife has only borne me two sons. And one of them is gone. And you heard me say, he's been torn to pieces. Now if this one goes and any harm comes to him, it would kill me. You'll bring my gray hairs in evil down to Sheol. Judah pleads with this regent and says, Please, sir, it, it's, it's your fault he's even here. We didn't want Benjamin to even be here. But he's our dad's favorite son. He's the son our dad loves desperately. And please, if we don't bring him back, it would kill our dad. And we can't stand to see that. Understand what's happened, family. Repentance. Repentance. Joseph is looking upon his brother's. And he sees that not only do they love their father, but they love their brother Benjamin. And they can't stand to see him left here in slavery. This time around in Judah's speech, he's not pushing to throw the favorite son under the bus. but he's pushing to have the favorite son be set free. This is a complete 180, a complete turnaround, total repentance in the life of Judah and of all the brothers. They recognize their sin and are so broken over it and refuse to repeat the same mistake twice. They won't do this to their brother and they won't do this to their dad. Even if he doesn't see them as sons, they won't do this to him. They won't throw their brother under the bus, allow him to be sold into slavery. Judah loved Benjamin. Joseph's plan was truly beginning to work, but it's it's not over yet. Joseph still is not totally convinced. And so Judah's speech continues in verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I have come to your servant my father, and the boy is not with us, as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Yes, they love their dad, Jacob, but they love Benjamin. Judah loves Benjamin, and he offers this regent, who we know to be Joseph, a counteroffer. He says, Please, take my life instead. Please let Benjamin go, my brother. Let him go home with his brothers. Take me instead. Judah offers himself up as a sacrifice. This is so beautiful and so poetic because not only has Judah the leader of Israel it ends up being Judah that becomes the kingly line of Israel. It would be Judah and his descendants that would always be kings of Israel. Not only do we see the, the, the king in Judah now stepping up in love and offering himself a sacrifice. It says in the book of John that greater love hath no man than this, than he would lay down his life for his friend. It's the same love that caused Moses a desire to be plotted out from the book of life for the sake of Israel and the same love that caused Paul to wish upon himself hell if only his his kinsmen would believe in Jesus this same self-sacrificing love is welling out of Judah there has been complete repentance Judah has been offered the chance to redeem himself from his past mistakes and he's done just that. Take me instead. But far greater than that is the beauty of the foreshadowing that Judah would lay his life down for his brother. That Thousands of years later, Judah's descendant, Jesus, would lay his life down for us, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah has absolutely stepped up to the plate. Not only has he dealt with his demons, but he's repented of his sin. selling Joseph into slavery and this time he sells himself into slavery for his brother Benjamin complete total repentance we're going to bleed a little bit into chapter 45 normally won't do this but it's hard to stop in the middle of a story Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves, because you uh uh or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. And Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. God made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall bear my name. Or be near me, sorry. And you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed and all his brothers and wept upon them. And after after that, his brothers talked with him. We read on through the rest of chapter 45, and we'll read tomorrow, of all the provisions that Joseph makes, this grandeur of sending them to, to Jacob. But we have here a few things that I don't want to miss, family. I don't want us to miss this. This is one of the most awesome stories in the entire Bible. Because it speaks of, like I said, redemption. It speaks of redemption. Judah had an opportunity to redeem his sin, in a sense, to say... (sighs) I screwed up once, but I'm not going to do it again. I refuse to sell my brother Benjamin into slavery. I love him dearly. I didn't love Joseph because he was dad's favorite, but I've seen the error of my ways over the last 20 years, and I repent of that. I love Benjamin too much, and I love my dad too much to do this to him, even if he doesn't love me for what happened to Joseph. I still love dad and I don't want to see this happen to him. And so instead of selling his brother into slavery, he sells himself into slavery. Redemption is made. And repentance is made. Such a beautiful type of Christ family. Who though we were slaves to sin, We were slaves to sin. Jesus came into the world and bore our sin. He took our wrongs. We stole the cup, only we weren't framed. We actually stole the cup. And Jesus took that sin and and offered himself up as a sacrifice to us. God made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Not only was there, family, repentance and redemption, but reconciliation. Understand, because of this, because of what Judah chose to do, because of Judah's repentance and redemption, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. It's me, Joseph, your brother. Don't be afraid. And his brothers, who've long lived with the guilt and the pain of what they've done, are reconciled to their brother. Joseph looks at them and says, don't worry, don't don't be mad at yourselves about what you did. God sent me before you to prepare a remnant. Now go to dad and tell him of all these things. Not only was the reconciliation of the brothers with Joseph, but now finally the brothers would be reconciled to their father, Jacob. Your son is okay. Jacob's complete sorrow would be turned. And finally he'd be at peace with The rest of his sons, and they'd have they'd be reconciled to him. Those burned bridges would be mended. Family, this is so true of us in our own lives. This is this is in effect what's happened with us. This is what's happened. We were slaves to sin. And because of our wrong, we had a debt to pay. We had a debt to pay. That debt was death. And ultimately, an eternity spent separated from God. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, the God-man, came down to this earth. Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross, bearing our sin and bearing the punishment for our sin so that we might be reconciled to him and reconciled to God. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son, that whoever... Sorry, I tripped up on reciting this verse. For God so loved the world that he, for, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him might not perish but have eternal life. John seventeen three. Jesus himself defines eternal life. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is why I came here, Jesus said, to reconcile everyone. To you, God, Dad, and to me. Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 goes on to explain it and it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus, the son, the lion of the tribe of Judah, gave his life that we might be reconciled to Christ and reconciled to our dad. This is so rich, guys, what's happening in the scripture here, what God did through Joseph. Not only. Selling Joseph into slavery. Understand, Joseph says himself that God sent me to Egypt. God put me here. You didn't sell me into slavery. God did. And he put me here so that I could save your lives. So that I could preserve you a remnant on this earth. God not only did this to preserve Israel then, but to point to Jesus. That we might better understand what he did on the cross. Yeah, he is the favorite son. Dad's only begotten son. And we were estranged from our father. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we've been reconciled to dad. Understand this, family. Please, listen, don't miss this. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 2 says that our righteousness is from God. We here as Christians sit today right with God and reconciled with Him. Understand, family, not because of anything that we have done. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus did. He is our righteousness, and there is nothing we could have done to earn heaven, and there is nothing we can do to lose being made right with God. I don't care what you've done today or this week or this month or this year. I don't care if you, like Cody was talking about, have recently just lost track of things and, and sort of fallen back and maybe walked away from the Lord. I don't care what's going on in your life. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. I'm not right with God. I'm not pure. I'm not holy because of anything that I'm doing because I'm behind this microphone, because I work at a church. That is not it at all. But I stand here today justified. Justified is a theological term that means two things. Not only does it mean that it's as if I've never done anything wrong, but it's also as if I have always done the right thing. Understand, family, Jesus didn't just pay for our sins. He gave us his righteousness. Do you understand, family, that when God looks at you, God looks at you, I'm so proud of you, son, daughter. You have followed me all the days of your life. You have never done anything wrong. You have walked a straight line. You read your Bible all day and memorized and quoted scripture to yourself throughout the day you've spent time with me you helped the sick and the widow and the orphaned you prayed for those who needed it you gave all your money everything that you had you gave it all up for me you you lived a completely sinless life today family i'm not making this up this is how god sees you because when he looks at you he sees jesus He sees the righteousness that Jesus took and put in our account. What Judah did and what happened with Joseph in this this story points so vividly to Jesus and what he's done for us. This is a story of redemption of repentance and of reconciliation and so family let's walk in that we have been reconciled to god it says in Romans, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, of going to people and of proclaiming the peace that they can have with God, the right standing that they can have with God, that no matter how messed up they are or how twisted they've made their heart to be or how jacked up their life is because of what Christ did on the cross, they can be looked at as pure and spotless and holy before God and have a relationship with their dad, their father in heaven. Let's walk in this. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus Christ, then this is what I mean by that. If you have accepted Jesus not only as your Savior, but as your Lord, the Master of your life, if you've accepted that free gift of salvation, confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and are walking in newness of life, walking in relationship with him, there is no condemnation for you. Yes, there is conviction. The Holy Spirit definitely convicts us when when we sin, when we screw up, when we fail, but there's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for me because Jesus has reconciled us to, to God and to himself. This is not something to be somber about, family. Lift up your faces. This is something to rejoice over, Let's never forget what Jesus did for us. Substituting his life for ours, paying our debt, and imputing his righteousness to our account that we might go in peace to our Father. And let's go. And be ambassadors of Christ. Ministers of reconciliation. Reminding people constantly that they can be right with God. They don't have to spend this life and eternity hereafter separated from Him. They can be made right with God and have a relationship with Him. Not only for eternity in heaven, that's great. But now here on earth as well. Family, remembering this, let's repent of our sin. Let's repent of our sin, and as Paul said, let's count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything that we have is gain. Let's count it as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Amen? Family, let's pray. And this week, I want you to go live in peace with God. Walk in that reconciliation. Walk in relationship with Him. Be joyful about it and tell other people. Amen? Father, Father, How beautiful the picture that you painted in the story. Point to Jesus. Father, how beautiful what you did in sending Jesus to die for us on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God, and that we might be in right standing with you, that we could be reconciled to you and that we could have a relationship with you, God. It blows my mind. We don't deserve it, God. But you did it anyway because you love us. Even though we were guilty, Jesus, you loved us. We were the joy that was set before you that caused you to endure the cross, despising the shame. And so God, please teach us to walk in that reconciliation. Teach us to live in relationship with you and teach us to daily repent of our sin and to return to you. I'm so unworthy. But still you love me. And so, Father, forever we will sing of how great you are. Thank you, King. We pray all this in your precious Son's name. Walking on the blood that he shed for us. Amen. Family, the Lord richly bless you and keep you this week. May God cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. And family, listen, the Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace.